Don't confuse your country with a particular political party in power and their bad or good ideas. Value your country more and in fact fight for your country in the realm of ideas. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, the viewers of this show probably won't be surprised to hear me suggest that Justin Trudeau is not a very deep thinker. What might shock you is that most, if not all, of the things that he tends to say in public are coming from people who are deep thinkers. And who are these deep, deep thinkers? Well, it just so happens that many of these ideas and many of the things that we hear about publicly are coming from places called think tanks. What is a think tank? Uh, what do they do there? Um, what does this mean for us? Why is this important? Well, today we have on the show somebody who is uh, very steeped in, in think tanks. In fact, he started his own and he's been working for a very long time in this space. He's a well-known public intellectual named Mark Milkey. Thanks for coming on the program today, Mark, to talk about the Aristotle Foundation. Thank you for having me on, Leighton. Yeah. So as we always do, uh, Mark, I don't know if you've seen the show, but we have a few framing aphorisms that, uh, of course, are in your honor. Won't surprise you to uh, learn today that I've picked a few. And it's very hard to pick a few from uh, the great uh, Grecian philosopher Aristotle. Uh, but here, here goes. Here's a few, and hopefully you like these. One of, the, one of them I stole from your website. Uh, it says, the city exists not only for the sake of living, but rather primarily for the sake of living well. Uh, a second one is, dignity does not consist in possessing honors, but in deserving them. Uh, next, at his best, man is the noblest of all animals. Separated from law and justice, he is the worst. And finally, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a dying society. Um, and of course, that one has particular, unfortunately, particular application to the West, in my opinion. Who do we have on the show today? Well, Mark Milkey is a uh, PhD. He's the founder and president of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, which we're going to learn about today. He's been a public policy analyst uh, for many years, uh, author of six books, uh, 70 studies, over a thousand columns uh, over the past quarter century. He's also worked extensively in, in politics. Uh, he's worked with the Fraser Institute. Uh, he's written an exciting new book that we're going to talk about. And he's even uh, been involved in Alberta politics as, uh, as being part of a, a big part of Jason Kenney's uh, uh, leadership campaign back in 2019, which we all know was highly successful. So uh, welcome to the show, Mark. Uh, we're excited to talk to you about the Aristotle Foundation. Thanks, Leighton. So Think tanks, as you mentioned at the beginning, what are they? Well, they're really about ideas, and you can think of ideas as viruses, right? So uh, it's a partial uh, you know, comparison, perhaps. I mean, viruses are usually bad, um, but you can have good ideas or bad ideas. And um, they, they're what sink into culture, and culture leads politics. Uh, maybe another example is you know, it's a bit like a lake above a dam. Uh, if the lake is healthy, if the water is healthy and it flows down, uh, over the dam and into the valley below. You have green fields, you have trees, you have farms where you can grow healthy food, you can drink clean water. Well, if the lake above the dam is polluted, well, then you get a polluted landscape down below or a dead landscape. 
And that's the problem with bad ideas versus excellent or good ideas. So that's what think tanks in essence do. And most think tanks would, would claim they're connected to reality, but not all are. Uh, depends on the subject matter, depends on the expertise. But that's what think tanks uh, who are credible and attached to reality try and do. Simply say, okay, you see a problem out there, let's analyze it, let's figure out a better way to go about this. And uh, known example from the 20th century, um, uh, former institute I used to work for, the Fraser Institute, was founded in part to say, listen, um, you know, open markets will get more people out of poverty than will Marxism or uh, or its sister socialism. So that was an example of trying to apply economic realities to the analysis of poverty in the 20th century. Same today. Uh, there are issues today that are different, but nonetheless, you have to apply the um, the test of reality to them. So that's really what good think tanks are about and should do. And that's why we started the Aristotle Foundation to champion reason uh, and also democracy and an old fashioned word civilization, which just means how should we get along? A very, uh, you know, very ancient question from Aristotle on forward. Right. Uh, when I was doing some research uh, for our talk, Mark, I, I noticed that there are some, uh, let's say, left leaning think tanks in places like the, the United States uh, that re receive massive amounts of funding and have really had a great deal of impact on public policy and onto legislation and things like the environment, uh, the things like LGBTQ and and uh, and other other topics. Um, it seems to me, in looking at the uh, Aristotle Foundation, it wouldn't be fair to say that it's a small C conservative. It seems to be more of a classical liberal type of approach. But it seems to to me, and I wonder, I want to get your take on this. That uh, that's that there is sort of a renaissance, uh, or let's say a reaction, on the other side of the debate, where we're seeing more uh, think tanks like the Aristotle Foundation coming to the fore, and their ideas are making their way into public policy and governance. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, labels are always tough because they don't necessarily encapsulate what you know. Somebody may think of small C conservative differently than someone else. So labels are always tough because I'm not sure what's in people's mind when they use the label, right? Right. Um, and so I always try and focus people on the issues. And yeah. if you're attached to reality or should be, uh, that's really the core question. Um, so let me give you a good example from the 1867 project, the book that you know, 20 authors and I just released. Um, the question, uh, one of the questions in the book is, you know, how to think about history. Um, but also there's another question in the book. Are we an institutionally racist country? That's right. not necessarily a right or left question. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a question about are we an institutionally racist country and how do you measure that? Well, Matthew Lau um, does try and do just that. He says, look, uh, we are not systemically institutionally racist like we were a century ago, right? His ethnic origin or background is Chinese and we were ethnic or we were institutionally racist. Canada was a century ago to ethnically right. Chinese people in Canada, but that was a century ago. And so he argues in the book, the 1867 project, we're not that now. And he does that based on looking at data from you know, race and income, ethnicity and income, whereas East Asian Canadians are at the top of the income heap. And he also explains the difference between, say, meeting a bigot today. That's not the same thing as claiming Canada in 2023 is like Alabama in 1923. So right. it matters some great work, uh, you know, kind of digging down in the data and, and making that point, and I, I, and I would think, uh, argue, proving that Canada is not a systemically racist country. So those are not necessarily left-right questions. It's a question about, all right, here's an allegation, a claim. Um, can you prove it, um, or can we defeat this claim because we think it's wrong? You know, right. It's a reality check, really. Right. 
So uh, if we can, let's dive into some of these ideas, some of them, some of them that are that are talked about or mentioned on your website and also in the book. Um, I believe you wrote a piece uh, not so long ago that was about Pierre Trudeau. You said Pierre Trudeau was right about individual liberty, unlike his son. What did you mean by that? Sure. So that's the last chapter in the 1867 project, the book that we published. And what I try and do is the book lays out some of the problems in Canada. Uh, but at the end of the 1867 project, what I wanted to do is say, OK, uh, given um, that Canada is indeed a diverse country, and, and most people would buy that, mean, you know, um, you know, your background, your, your skin color, uh, maybe your faith or lack thereof, um, and it will be increasingly uh, diverse eth ethnically um, and racially in the years ahead, you want to make sure that people then unite around ideas, good ideas, right? Because you can't, you can't unite around a skin color because you know, then you end up with a racist society. You can't unite around someone's ethnicity because all of us have a background that's different. Um, so you want people, and this is the lesson of human history, to unite around laudable good ideas. And in the Western tradition anyway, those have been things like um, the rights of the individual, the rights of women, um, freedom of religion, of the press, um, you know, democracy. So what I do at the end of the book uh, is to say, listen, Pierre Trudeau understood the, the necessity to treat people as individuals. This is, and I disagreed with Pierre Trudeau on, you know, I was a kid when he was prime minister, but um, then and now um, I, I look at his ideas and most of them I would disagree with, right? He was a very sort right. of collectivist in economics, but the one thing he was right on was when he fought Quebec, for example, on uh, their ethnic politics. Um, and their language politics, where they discriminated then and now against the English-speaking minority, or in their history against other minorities. And Pierre Trudeau was a classical liberal in that sense, and an individual rights advocate in that sense. He despised that. And he said uh, in a famous speech in 1992, when he was fighting the Charlottetown Accord referendum, um, that you receive, uh, that your rights predate the state, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but the, the state gets their rights from you, not the other way around. And that's important to understand. Um, and that is the tradition in the Anglosphere. Uh, right. And there's a bit of that also in France, obviously, after 1789. And right. uh, so that's, uh, Pierre Trudeau was right about that. And when you forget that and you start dividing people up by race or ethnicity or gender, um, you're, headed for, uh, you're headed for trouble. Because again, you can't unite people around something that by definition, <laughs> they are not. Right. right. I can't change identities. Right. One of, one of the sort of themes, if I can put it that way, in looking at uh, your website and, and uh, maybe one of the founding principles of the Aristotle Foundation is this idea that we can unite under a banner, not necessarily a collective banner, but we can be, we can be united by ideas. And just coming back to your point there, I, you share this really wonderful story of your own family history where your family emigrated from uh, from Europe, I believe, Ukraine, and that that whole story of how you your family came to Canada, and and really became part of the Canadian uh, family. We used to, we used to call it the Canadian mosaic, and that's really part of what you're talking about, isn't it? Your your Aristotle Foundation is very concerned with the division that's being caused by bad ideas, and also concerned with the promulgation of good ideas that could potentially unite us. Is that a fair way of of characterizing some of the, uh, the, you know, some of what the Aristotle Foundation is all about. It is Leighton, indeed, and so what I try and do in, in uh, the book and, and also the foundation, the Aristotle Foundation, um, and your references to yeah, my grandmother on my dad's side, 
uh, who came from Ukraine. She was a three-year-old girl when her family tried to move to Canada in 1914. It's yeah, an incredible it story. Yeah, blocked by the uh, you know the emergence of World War One and ended up traveling around Europe and including Siberia uh, in Russia. Uh, Siberia for several years as well, but didn't make it to Canada for 13 years after that. Finally came here to Edmonton in 1927. Now, my grandmother never learned how to read. Um, she cleaned houses uh, before she got married uh, to my grandfather, who was a German who emigrated from Poland. Um, both of them came from, you know, a, a poor background. I think my grandfather had a grade three ed education, uh, survived the Great Depression, all of that. Um, and when I talked about this in a video for the Aristotle Foundation on our website, what I tried to point out is these days you hear people simplistically look at the economy or other people and go, oh, uh, they've done okay in life. They must have come from privilege. Right. Uh, and in fact, no, most of our ancestors and most of human history were dirt poor. And same with Canada until maybe the last 50 years, there's been a lot more wealth created. But when right. you think about, say, pre-World War II, most people were dirt poor, including my grandparents. My own mother and father lost everything in the 1980s due to a deep recession then. Um, and, and in fact, it's a misunderstanding. So when you hear people talk about privilege these days, they actually misunderstand the economy. And this matters even to arguments over history. When French fur traders came here 500 years ago, they were not privileged. They didn't sort of come to a continent with a 30, you know, or a $3 trillion economy or a country with a $3 trillion economy. You know, they captured animals and traded furs, you know, with the inhabitants, you know, here then, people now we call indigenous. And they created the economy, so to speak. Right. Um, steal it from anyone. And that's important to understand. So all of our ancestors, I would argue, including pre-Confederation, helped build what we know today. Uh, you know, if you're a Spanish conquistador, sure, okay, you stole some gold, you know, in Latin America, what we call Latin America today. But that's not the history of the Anglosphere by and large. Right. So it's important to understand economies are created. Most of our ancestors worked hard to get where we are today, and we should be grateful to them instead of accusing, accusing one another of privilege. Yeah, I so agree with you about this concept of gratitude. Um, and I, know, I note that a lot of what you write about is you're very opposed to the politics of division. And in that vein, another piece that you wrote is was about cancel culture. You wrote a piece recently uh, saying it's time to cancel cancel culture. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, about what cancel, cancel culture is and why it's so it's so damaging? Sure. Uh, I mean, division is okay, by the way. Uh, you know, if you divide, you know, if you're telling me the emperor is fully clothed and I think he's naked, we will divide based on right. my, my analysis of what I'm seeing right. and what I think you're not uh, or covering up um, or not telling the truth on. So division is sometimes okay uh, in the pursuit of truth. But the division that's happening today, you're right, is basically attacking other people, attacking their backgrounds, dividing people in terms of hiring based on race and ethnicity and gender and that sort of thing. So there's unnecessary division being created today. Cancel culture is part of that problem, I would argue. So one of the authors in the 1867 project, and the subtitle is you know, why we should cherish Canada, not cancel it. Um, one of the authors is Greg Piasatsky, member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, um, History goes back several hundred years, you know, various, you know, lineage in his, in his bloodline. And Greg writes a wonderful chapter on Johnny McDonald saying, look, yes. uh, he's not the villain he's been made out to be. And we should not cancel Johnny McDonald because despite his imperfections, which, by the way, all of us have, uh, you, me, the critics today, uh, anyone in human history, you know, before, now and in the future, uh, despite imperfections in Johnny McDonald, despite some views from the 19th century, which 
you know, he lived in the 19th century. Why would, you, why would you expect him to have views other than those in the 19th century? Despite that, you can look at Johnny MacDonald and go, you know something, in the main, he tried to help, for example, indigenous Canadians with the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police, precisely to avoid the kind of um, brutality and murdering that was happen happening in the American West at that point. Um, so was Johnny MacDonald racist? Yeah, probably, in his views towards indigenous peoples. Did he also think there were human beings that deserved not to endure what was happening in the United States? That is true as well. And you can you can say that both ideas were true because they were. Uh, Johnny MacDonald also tried to alleviate famine on the prairies. He was criticized by uh, his opposition, the liberal opposition of the day. He was a conservative, but he was criticized by the liberal opposition for spending too much. And he defended spending money to alleviate famine on the prairies. Um, and so there are these nuances in history that these days, today, you, you often don't hear about. And Greg Piasatsky does a wonderful job in the book, in the 1867 project of saying, are you really sure you want to cancel people in history um, without, first of all, a full understanding of who they are? And, and second, um, do you understand actually how they contributed to a better country overall? They weren't perfect. We're not perfect now. But one of the analogies I like to use with people is, Canada, like any country or any civilization, is like an oak tree. And we're not talking Mao's China. We're not talking Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. But for a liberal democratic country like Canada in the Anglosphere, it's like an oak tree. And just because right. there were imperfections in human history, in our history, women didn't receive the vote until the 1910s. Um, indigenous people didn't have the vote restored until 1960. That was wrong. Uh, it should have happened long before. Uh, and, but that was the reality of history at the time. Those are diseased limbs that we pruned off, so to speak, and it made the oak tree of Canada stronger and better. You don't take down the oak tree because of imperfections in history or now. What you do is you prune and you make the tree better. That's how we should think about human history. Did this person help contribute to a better oak tree, a better country, a better Canada or not? And we would argue in the 1867 project, plenty of people pre and post Confederation contributed to what we uh, I've come to know and love as Canada today and why it is uh, a wonderful country. One of the things that you talk about a lot uh, on in, in terms of your writing is um, sort of this pervasive woke ideology and how destructive it is. And this that makes total sense because I, I you know, I, I think I can gather from, let's say, looking at Nicomachean ethics, <laughs> what Aristotle would say about woke ideology. Um, but you talk a lot about this in the, in the concept, not only of why woke ideology is bad in terms of trying to create a utopian uh, world, but also uh, in terms of cautioning uh, people who are against it to, to resist the temptation to, to act like the quote-unquote enemy. And one piece that you wrote is, memo to the right, stop acting like the left. What was the message that you were trying to convey there? Um, sure. There, well, there's a lot there in terms of, uh, I try not to use, you know, um, words that are now overused too much, like, well, right. uh, but by that, I, I think you and I probably mean sort of anti-reality, um, ideas or just, this, uh, again, tied to cancel culture, uh, you know, or, or other things like, again, we should be ashamed of Canadian history as opposed to understanding Canada's uh, developing oak tree, um, that sort of thing. Right. So, uh, the context of that, um, you know, is is that um, what you want to do? Uh, look, for the 20th century, um, people we now call you know small C conservatives. Again, you may be big C conservative. That's the partisan affiliation. I'd mostly stay away from politics, except for the time where I helped the former premier 
then opposition leader with his platform. But I've tried to stay, to stay away from partisan politics for the most part, just because I'm more interested in making sure the ideas get out there. And right. I'm not necessarily as concerned about whether, you know, uh, political party A or B gets into power um, with rare exception. So um, on, on that article that were on that column, my point was it, it, too many people, for example, seem to be enthralled by, um, well, um, the American example of Donald Trump, um, right. who I picked on again a moment ago and will again now. Um, look, this is a person who doesn't seem to grasp that um, the beauty of the Anglosphere and what he was given was a country, despite being born out of revolution, um, has mostly hewed to the rule of law and uh, peaceful transitions of power. And people now that sort of want to make excuses for violence, like um, January the 6th a few years ago, um, or want to get conspiratorial, uh, or want to be anti-science, um, you know, they need to give their head a shake because um, what the 20th century was about, at least on the right, um, was about reality recognizing policy. And, in case, and, and the 20th century is all about the debate between uh, communism and capitalism or free markets and, you know, way too much intervention. And um, conservatives in the 20th century said to those who were socialist or communist, your policies won't work. They won't relieve people from poverty. In fact, they'll make it worse. You'll also concentrate power in the hands of um, tyrants and dictators, which is exactly what happened. Your prescriptions are wrong. In other words, the conservatives, the libertarians of the 20th century, the classical liberals too, were reality recognizers. And if you get into the 21st century now, and some people want to take a bender um, and, and again, you know, imitate the left on anti-reality thinking, then they're going to make the same mistake. Eventually hit a brick wall. So that's what the column was about. Um, you know, those on the right really shouldn't take their talking points or their analytical frameworks from the left. Right. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about gender or whether you're talking about economics or whether you're talking about uh, the need to resolve things peacefully. Um, and I guess part of that, uh, now that I think about it as well, Leighton, was it was again about, um, you know, the peaceful transfer of power. Like, don't worship demagogues and think a man will save you. Right. There's there's an old scriptural injunct, injunction, put not your faith in princes or trust in princes. Right. Um, and the American founders, who were mostly not religious, understood that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know those in the British tradition, um, you know, the, the idea of responsible government. They understood that uh, men are subject to to think they can solve everything. And if you only give them all the marbles, they'll they'll make life better for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, well, don't worship Donald Trump or any other politician. They may do some things that you agree with now and then, and that's fine. Uh, but don't think they're going to solve all your problems and don't give them all the power to do so, because I guarantee they will be corrupted if they're not corrupt already. Right. And, and one of the things you also talk about, um, not necessarily in that piece, but in your other writings, is that uh, let's not tear down our country. Let's not denigrate our country. Let's mm -hmm. celebrate this robust history of, of freedom. Let's teach our children about it. Uh, let's inculcate that culture. Let's get back to that, uh, uh, you know, love of country, uh, because that's that's really a sustaining idea that we can all unite around, right? Right. And... I get the frustration again. Look, there are, there are many policies I disagree with today. Uh, I've spent my ent entire career fighting bad ideas, hoping to replace them with good ideas and policy. Like, you know, it was with the Taxpayers Federation, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, you know, or now at the Aristotle Foundation. So I get people's frustration. But um, don't confuse your country with a particular political party in power and their bad or good ideas. 
value your country more, and in fact, fight for your country in the realm of ideas. This yeah. is what I've always tried to do. It's why I've written books. It's why I've founded a think tank now with others. Um, it's why I've got 30 senior fellows at the Aristotle Foundation who are going to do work, going to do work for us, starting to do that. It's why we published a book, yeah. 20 of us, the 1867 Project, because we think it's important to communicate what's been best about Canada. Uh, so yeah, don't imitate the left. Um, also on the, uh, well, I just hate Canada. I want to leave it because I don't agree with policies. People on the left said that when Stephen Harper was in power. Um, those on the right shouldn't say it now and again, confuse a particular political party. Uh, we, you know, they come and go and their ideas in, the, in those political parties come and go and change. Yeah. Don't confuse political parties and politicians with your country. You own it, um, not them. Right. That's an, a very important distinction you just made between the politics of a country and the nation itself. And honestly, I, I found myself uh, falling into that somewhat of of late being less patriotic than I, you know, than I once was just because I really, really dislike and abhor the policies of the current uh, government in Ottawa. Uh, but that that's that's an important distinction. That I think we should all reflect upon. I'm glad I appreciate you, you making that one. Mark, this has been a really illuminating conversation. I knew it would be. We've learned a lot. Uh, this is a part of the program on our show where we turn to something called the reading list. And uh, it perhaps won't surprise you today that the books we're featuring are ones that are connected to you. Uh, firstly, the one, the book you've been talking about, the 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished and Not Cancelled. Uh, and here the description is Canada is an open, diverse, and full of opportunities. So why is it under attack? That's a brilliant book. I enjoyed it very much. The other one that I also pulled from your website is um, uh, the book. It was called Protestant Liberty. Really mm -hmm. enjoyed this one. And uh, in, in the, the, the preface is, who invented individual rights in Canada? Uh, James M. Forbes is the author. Those are the, the two selections that I drew out. Are there any other books? Just to hand it over to you and let you finish off our reading list today. There are a lot there, but I can think of two off the top of my head. Uh, the Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, in part because of how he talks about friendship, and it's an undervalued love. And then there's a book by the late Paul Johnson. What Johnson argues is that the intellectual class, which replaced, replaced the priestly class, you know, Rousseau and others, have become worshipped in their own right, uh, and yet they're flawed human beings. And he makes the point in the book, if I recall correctly, that, of course, intellectuals, even if they have a specialty in one area, we shouldn't necessarily accord to them expertise across all areas. Hey, Mark, this has been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed so much uh, our hour together. I know that the people taking in the podcast will. Um, where can people find you? Obviously, there's the there's the website, uh, the, the AristotleFoundation.org, uh, is it? Uh, am I correct? It is, AristotleFoundation.org. And you also have your, uh, your podcast, right? We do. We have a podcast. Um, uh, you know, you'll see uh, and be able to download from AristotleFoundation.org. And of course, you can buy the 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled, from your local bookstore or online from Amazon and other sources. And we'll provide all those links. And again, Mark, thank you so much for being our special guest here on Grey Matter today. Thank you, Leighton. 